<laughs> you said bye while we were talking. Nobody said bye yet. It was like a conversation. I was like, don't say bye to people. We can't just keep talking. <laughs> That's a professional segue. It's on that one. <laughs> One of the shadiest things you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna keep Bye. talking and going and going. <laughs> While we're talking. Bye. <laughs> Whew, okay. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Tahat. I am Luther So Pretty Hughes. And I'm Gabrielle Bates. <laughs> uh, last week, we chatted it up with Aria Aber about CD Wright, Subjectivity, and Singing America poems. Uh, for this episode, we're geeking out about a poem she brought in written by someone else. Aria chose The Master's House by the one and only Salmaz Sharif. You're going to want to listen, read, run, climb, vault, fly your way on over to the poem, or just stay listening to us. It's so good. The Master's House by Sulma Sharif. To wave from the porch, to let go of the grudge, to disrobe, to recall Ethel Rosenberg's green polka dotted dress, to call your father and say, I'd forgotten how nice everyone in these red states can be, to hear him say, yes, long as you don't move in next door, to recall every drawn curtain in the apartments you have lived. To find yourself at 33 at a vast expanse with nary a papyrus of guidance, with nary a voice, a muse, a model. To finally admit out loud then, I want to go home. To have a dinner party of intellectuals with a bell, long-armed, lightly tongued at each setting. To sport your dun gown. To revel in face serums. To be a well-calibrated burn victim, to fight the signs of aging, to assure financial health, to be lavender sachets and cedar lining and all the ways the rich might hide their rot, to eye the master's bone china, to pour diuretic in his coffee and think this erosive to the state, to disrobe when the agent asks you to, to find a spot on any wall to stare into, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall as a lead-vested agent names article by article what to remove. To do this in order to do the other thing, the wild thing, to say, this is my dim, the master's house, and I gaze upon it, and it is good. To discuss desalinization plans and deterrer. To date briefly a banker, a lapsed Marxist, and hear him on the phone speaking in billions of dollars, its residue over the clear bulbs of his eyes, as he turns to look upon your nudity. To fantasize publishing a poem in the New Yorker, eviscerating his little need. 
to set a bell at each intellectual's table, setting ringing idea after idea and be the simple footed help rushing to say yes, to disrobe when the agent asks you to, to find a spot on any wall to stare into, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall to say, this is my filmdom, the master's house. To recall the settler who from behind his mobile phone said, I'm filming you for God. To recall the sad God, God of the mobile phone camera, God of the small black globe and pixelated eye above the blackjack table at Haras in the metal tooth pit of Kalandia checkpoint the same to recall the Texan that held the shotgun to your father's chest, sending him falling backward, bleeding, and the words came to him in Farsi. To be jealous of this, his most desperate language, to lament the fact of your lamentations in English, English being your first defeat, to finally admit out loud then, I want to go home to stand outside your grandmother's house, to know, for example, that in Farsi, the present perfect is called the relational past and is used at times to describe a historic event whose effect is still relevant today, transcending the past. To say, for example, Shah Diktator de As translates to the Shah was a dictator, but more literally to the Shah is, was a dictator. To have a tense of is, was, the residue of it over the clear bulb of your eyes. To walk cemetery after cemetery in these states and marry a gravestone reading Solmaz. To know no nation will be home until one does. To do this in order to do the other thing, the wild thing, though you've forgotten what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, uh, Arya, would you tell us, you know, what's been drawing you to this poem lately? Why, why you wanted to choose it? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it was a tough choice, right? Because I wanted to talk about Suji Kwok Kim's The Chasm, which has been really formative to the way I write. But because of the new anti-immigration policy that was put into place this week, um, I somehow got the line, I want to go home, stuck in my head. And I knew that it was from this poem, so I start rereading it obsessively. And I realized how much work this poem is doing, both formally and content-wise, and in terms of like extending empathy. And yeah, I just like, I'm obsessed with her work in general. I think she's one of the most important poets writing nowadays, but this poem as well, it's just so fascinating to me. I don't think I really understand what is happening. And yeah, I would just love talking about it, so. Yeah, this is definitely one of those poems upon, on like every reread, there's something new um, that you yeah, catch. Exactly. Um, I think to me this time to disrobe, like the extension of to disrobe really struck me. Um, and I'm really interested in that move, like sort of the repetition, but like after each repetition, extending the line even further. Um, and even I guess like 
you know, to zoom out the like the item in the list, right? If this is like a list poem. Um, and that in relation to like extending empathy, like the speaker extending empathy through like the extension of the line and like the duration of like that thing or that speaker's gaze maybe even at that thing. That's fascinating. I keep thinking of this poem's form being a list of what we would call in English an infinitive. Yeah. And how the word infinitive just makes me think of like infinity and like this ongoingness yeah. and this endlessness and how like the length of the list, the sorts of repetitions that are happening, and then ultimately, you know, ending on this note of forgetting. It just, it all feels so like smart and interwoven. And I'm not sure if I've seen a poem in this sort of list infinitive form before. If I have, um, it's not doing the work that this one is doing in terms of that like content and form. Right, I, I, I agree. Like the most fascinating part of this poem is also I think formally that it is in the infinitive, that we are trapped in this perpetual infinitive, right? That these are, at, she's kind of like rewriting a verb, right? Like creating her own verbs. And also it creates a democracy of speaker, even though there is a self present, there is no exact I. So we're all inhabiting the I by it being in the infinitive form. And that's such a compl complex creation. I've also never read anything like this. And if I have, as you said, Gabby, it's not doing the same work because it's not coming up right now in my memory. Um, and yeah, I'm all, I always tell my students that anaphora is such an easy form to write in, but that you have to be super calculated about what word you choose to repeat at the beginning of the sentence, mm -hmm. right? Because it needs to make sense and benefit the content of the poem. And this is doing that. Yeah. I think that decision to Gabby's point of like, it being sort of being about forgetting at the end, um, that tension between the forgetting and the infinitive being the thing that is repeated over and over again is like, that's just that, like that alone does like so much work. And it's just like a, 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 a level, a just like next level. <laughs> I, it, it, it's next like, level crap, you know, 100%. I also, I mean, I've never been to Breadloaf, but there are images in this poem that when I read it the first time, reminded me of what it must be like to be at Breadloaf, like being at the intellectuals table and like serving them while they have idea after idea. And I think she went to Breadloaf. I actually have no idea whether this poem is anything about that, but that's what it made me think of, of like that hierarchy, right? Like the hierarchy of what it means to be an intellectual and somebody who's like striving to get a position where you sit at the table. And then the word, like the title, the master's house and the master coming up over and over again, thinking about like master and slave in general and like American consciousness, but also um, the master's house as Audre Lorde talks about it in, in her essay where she, where she says that the master's house cannot be dismantled with the master's tools, right? And, and this poem, as you said, Duji, I think like the, the disrobing kind of like talks about the vulnerability and like being exposed to the master's tools over and over again and not really knowing why you entered or like why you decided to partake in like whatever is happening at the master's house. I don't know, there is so much like, yeah, it's really depressing, but also beautiful. Um, 
I love that you just brought up bread loaf. That's actually where I met Salmas for the first time. Oh, okay. Um, it was when I was going in to be a waiter and she was coming back. She had been a waiter and she had been a head waiter. So it's entirely possible that some of this imagery is like tied up in that. I mean, who knows? Um, but oh my gosh, that's blowing my mind to think about <laughs> that context with this. Really drawn to what uh, uh, Gabby brought up the last part, the last line of like forgetting and forgotten, and just the last line itself is some way kind of calling to us as readers, right, to do this in order to do the other thing, this the wild thing. The wild thing could be the right there in Africa too, right? Um, though you've forgotten what it was, like at some point in the poem, you forget that we're in this infinite loop of two and two and two and two. And it takes her to like repeat lines like to this robe when the agent asks us to, to remind us, oh shit, yeah, we're in this loop that we can't really get out of. We forgot we're in this loop. What kind of goes into the idea of the master's house, right? You, you forget you're in this kind of oppressive situation mm -hmm. you've been living it for so long and you've forgotten what it what that is, like what the wild thing is. Like you're living in this place and in, in this poem. But you've forgotten. And even leaving this poem, like even like walking from the poem, I'm still gonna forget <laughs> the experience of like reading it, this yeah. two-ness of it, to not T-O-ness, not T. All right, listeners, you got it. Um and that like, that's what's blowing my mind with it. Like the 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 breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall of the poem, right? Like it's not really asking us and looking at us to look at the poem, but it's asking mm -hmm. us to look at the poem. Um yeah. Within the master's house. Quote, master's it's almost house. enacting <laughs> it, right? I think like that's maybe how it gets away with it. Like we were talking about the repetition of the infinitive sort of lulls us into a certain thing and the way that she's sort of talking or the way the speaker is like positioned against like the intellectuals, right? Like they're sort of lulled in a sense of um, like they have ideas but are removed from the actual happenings of what is happening. Um, <laughs> the happenings of what is happening, very smart. <laughs> But, and like, to think of like that, all of that and how like this is real, ultimately like a stunt, right? Like it's like the greatest stunt, <laughs> like to do this infinitive loop, to make it about forgetting and then to be like English, you know, to be writing in English at all, right? If English is the first defeat and then to sort of enact that sort of thing to, to make you see what is underneath it is like really, to me, a huge flex. Yeah, the flex of being like, English was my first defeat and yet look at what I, can do in English is like right. the yeah. ultimate. <laughs> Fuck you. And also, like, oh my God, can we talk about this moment where she says, like, to fantasize publishing a poem in New York for eviscerating his little so cool. He's like the coolest I person, right? Audacity. Like, to have, yeah, exactly. To have the, the audacity, audacity to put that in a poem and then publish it in poetry magazine. Wow. Right. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I hope I hope she sent this to the New Yorker. I'm, I'm sure Kevin Young has read it. <laughs> I wonder what he thinks about this. I also like, I want to go back to something that um, uh, Luther said about like, she's, she's teaching us how to look, right? I think that she, I think that her quality actually has something in common with Sharon Olds's poetry, even though they're very different poets in terms of like 
craft and content, I feel like they're both teaching us to re-envision looking and they're both looking at things that we're traditionally taught to look away from. Like with Sharon, it's like parts of the body, the penis, the vagina, the tampon. And then with Solmaz, it's all of these things that are thought to be not poetic or are dehumanized. Like in look, it's warfare and and bodies that yeah or like voices of people who are muted usually right and here i'm just like fascinated with the fact that she puts in one poem face serums and retinoids and being like a well-calibrated burn victim to fight the signs of aging and then having the New Yorker in there and having like an entire paragraph about the relational past in Farsi and her father being held at gunpoint. Like, how can you do this? How can you pull all of that into the same orbit of one poem and it's still being so artful, right? And, and then you realize the same way that you realize when you read a Sharon Olds poem is like, oh, this is what it means to be a human being in society occupying a body, right? Like, this is all part of my reality. And like, why would I not put this in a poem? And, and like, there is like su such a huge re-education happening within her work that I also see in Sharon Oz's work. And I don't know, this is a crazy comparison to make, but that's just like, when I read this yesterday, I was just, yeah, blown away. I think it's a right comparison because like, I mean, on the re-education part of both Sharon Old and Somaz in this poem, like like to go from uh, I'm filming your I'm filming you for your God to recall this sad God, God of the mobile counterphone. It's like, wait, for, wait, first of all, the God that we're talking about is not a sad God. Second of all, it is not a counterphone. But oh, guess what? Actually, you're a sad God, the God the counterphone, it actually it then to take that and actually comment on the day-to-day uh monotony of camera phones and phones in general like that in itself is wild right it becomes re-education not only of the human but also of the the society the world the tech world like it becomes a whole restructure of we thought a god is right it right. becomes a whole different conversation and then she moves on to to recall the texan that held the shotgun like oh what i wasn't <laughs> past the god part yet but it doesn't matter what your past i'm moving on to to the next two mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. How? 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 <laughs> exactly, how? Well, she's doing so many things in this poem that remind me of moves that you do too, Arya. So, like, I love this moment you already mentioned with the Farsi near the end where she teases out this, like, other, you know, form of the relational past with the is-was. And it reminds me of, you know, you do so many incredible moments like that in hard damage with like the I in English is capitalized, but the I in German is not. And just like calling attention to these differences between languages and like the meaning that is made in those differences. Um, mm. Yeah, I totally see you two as, as, I mean, you're very, you're very different poets, but you're of a similar sort of intelligence and spirit for me. Um, and so I, I definitely see a lot of a lot of like you and your poetics in this poem too. Thank you for saying that. That's incredibly flattering because I think, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, I feel like in this poem in particular, she's doing so many things that I just want to like inject into my brain. You know, um, I, I, I can't actually analyze what exactly it is that's here. Um, but yeah, like drawing attention to the material, material quality of 
the English language and like how it exists in relationship to other languages and um, what how grammar influences the way we look at the world or the way we look at history um, is something that that feels very close to my heart but also I mean she's an incredibly important poet to me because um, when I read her work it was the first time that I saw someone write about Afghanistan in an empathetic way and and not in a sensationalist way and it was the first time I felt represented and seen in poetry so I do think that she has opened gates and um, doors for a lot of diaspora poets who have similar histories or similar ethnic backgrounds and are from the Middle East. And um, she does feel like somebody who's like scorching um, all of the ceilings and like breaking all of like the boundaries for other people to walk through. And, and I, I adore her for that. So yeah, I do think that my work in some way, just because of the content and because of like our similar backgrounds is in conversation with one another to some extent, like that, that is inevitable. But also she's like so smart. <laughs> so like that's so far from what I can ever be able to be do, doing. Yeah. I like didn't even realize that the the lines with the with the agent asking her to disrobe were um, repeated until like the second or third time I read this poem because it's so artfully done, right? Because you 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 do get lost yeah. in the loop. Yeah, yeah and you forget if you had read it already. Yeah, you're just lulled into forgetting. <laughs> yeah, or I found myself thinking the line was different, even though it was exactly the same line sometimes. I was like, oh, she's changing it, but she actually hadn't. It was just the context it was reappearing in changed it, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. What do you guys think of poems that have a lot of references and illusions that you have to look up and research? I have strong feelings about this. So I'm gonna go like second or Strong third. feelings <laughs> first. Strong feelings okay, to the too. I have really strong feelings. I have strong feelings when the when the poem relies on the illusions for it to be successful. This poem does not do that, right? The poem, I don't need to know anything about any other things she's dropping for me to really know the poem is successful and the gesture is gesturing towards a success. And so for me, this poem is doing, the illusions are successful because the poems are relying on set illusions. Now, if your poem does rely on illusions to for for the reader to kind of engage with it in a uh, in a way you're meaning to, then is the poem doing the work you want it to do? Um, is the question right? It could be right. Like you could have illusions purposely to for the reader to be conflicted about how they can engage with it. And that could be your ultimate goal, right? But if you're wanting the reader to engage with it in a way that you are meaning it to be successful then is your poem doing the actual work it needs to do? Also, like, does the illusion need to be there? Like, if I reference, I don't know, some Japanese crow in a poem, and you don't know what that crow is or what it means to me, but I need you to understand it for you to get the poem, does it need to be there? Or can I just say crow, right? Like, and so, uh, it's just, it's just, it just bothers me people rely on illusions for poems to be successful. Also, I come from a, a grad school background where people did that, so I was like, girl. <laughs> if an illusion is a portal to like additional meaning and additional resonance, but like Luther was saying, the rest of the poem without those illusions is still offering 
um, an experience is still offering meaning, um, then that's a difference. You know, like I think you could read this poem and have an extremely rich, resonant relationship with it and have no idea who Ethel Rosenberg is. But I think if you know she's someone who was like executed for being convicted of being a spy in the Cold War, like you get something extra there. And like if you go and do that work and, and look that up, then like you're gonna come back to this poem and like have another layer. Um, same with, you know, films, same with, you know, so many of the things in this poem in particular. But I yeah, I think the repetition and the anaphora alone give enough of an experience emotionally and intellectually that like, yeah, the, the references are just additional at that point for me. Yeah, I think pretty much to repeat what you two have said, I think two things, <laughs> um, like the illusion itself can't be work, right? Like it can't be the only work of the poem. And I feel like I don't know if this is true, so and I'm just sort of coming to it. But I wonder if, like, the larger the illusion, the more work you have to actually do in the poem to, like, I don't know, earn it. Which is, you know, maybe a troubled verb mm -hmm. there. But like, it feels like you have to put in as much sort of like rigorous work in your relationship to the thing you are alluding to um, to like actually understand how it affects the rest of your poem and how it like sort of ripples outward from there. Um, and then the second thing sort of related to what Gabby was saying, and actually something Michelle Penaloza, our last guest, that's a promo, listen to the last episode. Um, no, but she did say about like Tagalog English, which is like, I want to not italicize certain things or include it here because I want some people to get more out of it. And that's just like the experience of living life. Like some people just get more out of certain things because they see themselves, or she, I think the definition of kin, right? They like, they see themselves in that thing. Um, and that like depth is deliberate. And, and I think like related to the former things, like if you have a relationship to your illusion um, that is rigorous and thought through, you can actually sort of ma manipulate it. It becomes like material, right? Like that illusion is actually a lever that you're pulling to create a particular effect for some people. Um, and knowing, but like knowing that you're doing that to the extent that you're doing that is like step one. Why do you ask, Aria? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm just interested in what people think about that because I heard some poets um, be put off by too many illusions in a poem because they don't want to be educated or don't think a poem is a place of education. But I fundamentally disagree with that. I, I love poems that teach me new things. I love poems that force me to look up other languages that I'm not familiar with, for example, or um, that forced me to Google who Ethel Rosenberg is because then I am, I'm a smarter person after having read the poem and like, and I'm also a smarter person because I want to understand the poem, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's just something interesting, but I do agree with what all of you have said, like the illusion by itself can't do the work. It needs to be calibrated towards the poem, right? And it needs to make sense within the universe that you're creating for that particular poem on the page. And I also think that this poem works without having to look up what dite ra means, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I kind of get that it's something bougie, <laughs> just like what it's called and how it operates, how it operates within that line. So, yeah, I mean, but I also I, I like I like Duji what you said about um, 
yeah, the, the virtue of, of some illusions, including some people and then not including others, mm -hmm. right? Because that's a power move that you can do if you're from a marginalized community that um, wasn't included in mainstream poetry or in the canon. I think Eduardo C. Coral said something interesting that he never tread often for the Spanish in his poems because he wants to address double readership. And in a way, all of like traditional canonical poetry also addresses a double readership, right? They expect you to have a certain type of education to, to like um, understand Christian allusions or like allusions that are of Greek mythology or something like that. So everything that you use in your poetry addresses a certain type of person that has or like class or, or social background as you. So, um, it's a much more complicated conversation than just saying, yeah, illusion is good or bad or like exclusive right. or inclusive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to return it to the master's tools, I mean, like in some way that illusion like is that, right? Like it, there's a sort of like the whole section on Farsi or even just the Shah was a dictator, like your level of knowledge in sort of the inclusion of that in the poem is like, like the illusion is a tool that the master has used to to define their own narrative like people in power have also done that right and so so sort of like use that as a tool in a poem about the master's tools is again a, a power move. <laughs> yeah exactly a whole other flex like so true i mean i'm i'm interested to hear what you guys think the wild thing is, but I guess mm. we've already talked about it a little bit. We can discuss it. <laughs> I mean, I love that, yeah, the poem forces you to ask yourself that question for yourself, you know, like, like what is it? What is the yeah. wild thing that I've forgotten? You know, it's, it's left like a, this, like, eerie thing that, like, you understand emotionally, but for me personally, can't put names to, um, which is, I think, like so much of what this poem is trying to get at. It's like, what is the wild thing that we are all, you know, kind of yearning for in this languageless way all the time beneath all of these actions? Well, the wild thing is, it's when it said at the, it said at the end of the poem, it said, but that's the second time it said, right? And so the first time it said, it, it responds to. The, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation just to just by staring at a spot on the wall as the as the lid vested agent named the article by article what to remove to do this in order to do the other thing the wild thing and it's funny because there what what's what's catching me up on the wild thing is the other thing like what is the other thing, right? Would it be not to remove your clothing when the agent asks? Would that mean to rebel? And so the other thing makes the wild thing kind of uh, some variable we can't name, right? But when it's said at the very end, um, the wild thing is possibly named or possibly put into a context where you can actually grasp that, but that doesn't make it any more nameable, it just makes it more graspable, <laughs> like, and so, and maybe, maybe the wild thing is the idea that it is just a fleeting thing. It's wild. You can't tame it. Like you can't tame the, the thing that is wild. And then the other thing, right? That doesn't answer question mm -hmm. at all, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, 
interested in the wild thing as like the foil to language mm. um uh, which i think is what the poem is getting at mm. right to do this what this is is like language and poetry um and trying to sort of like order experience through words um because i think even in that first instance of wild thing it comes at the directive of the agent right the agent utters words and a directive and then and then is juxtaposed with the wild thing and so i wonder you know I, i'm really interested in gabby your question of like is it even possible to approach this wild thing the sort of like non-language experience in a linguistic form right like in poetry in the art of language like that sort of juxtaposition was what comes up for me wow yeah i i mean i those are such good interpretations i also have no idea what this poem is getting at with the other thing the wild <laughs> but like me personally i think it is about language and like writing poetry and and trying to create within poetry something that rebels against the master and his house and i dismantle actually i think the master's house with the master's tools and that while you are trapped in this um infinite loop of trying to do something that's erosive to the state um you're not you're forgetting what your actual agenda is because you're being oppressed and like hurt over and over again um by even existing within these parameters that the master has um yeah put into place for someone like you right you're being othered over and over again and and you say you disrobe um to do yeah you disrobe because the agent agent tells you to in order to do the other thing the wild thing which might be not disrobing and like yeah, rebelling against this entire action right and then also towards the end i also think it's like um again still very vague but it makes sense on an emotional gut level to all of us i think when we read the poem and it might be something different for each of us individually yeah but the way i read it, it it's like immediately yeah. connected language and existing within America to walk cemetery after cemetery in these states and then to no no nation will be home until one does have a, a gravestone that reads your name you know that includes your name where you you are one of others and you're not like a singular other body but are part of a community and that you're still within these states and you're not leaving them in order to do the other thing the wild thing whatever that may be and maybe you've forgotten like you've lost yeah. track of what it could be uh, to draw a syntactical parallel yeah. um that last line like the wild thing is like the interrupting clause right it is like the singular thing sort of like so like if sort of being the soul solmas in uh confined to a nation there's sort of like the wild thing as the soul thing amidst this like other sort of otherwise linear sentence um and it's just it's so impressive like we all have a or like i have a solid understanding of and the poem does so much work in explaining what this is but like but which is like how the wild yeah. thing happens like we all have this like strong gut response into your point or maybe it's different for everybody but like it's funny that all the work is done in like sort of describing and like rot work on the other thing on the, the this um 
but the gesture is to something else, right? Like that's the thing that you're sort of left with. Yeah, true. Seems like a really massive exercise in trust. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking, are we still going? We can still go or not. We can stop if you want to stop. I'm thinking a lot of, <laughs> of our longer conversation and uh, how we were kind of talking about um, documentation, comma at all. Um, and then just kind of also this poem that brings up filming a lot. And of course I go to filming and documentary and how that's a thing and kind of and kind of tying that into the idea of wild thing and forgetting what you were trying to do and to make this product of documentation. And I'm thinking more so about this line. <gasps> I lost the line. Uh, the line uh, that says, to say this is my fieldum, the master's house, and I gaze upon it, it, it is good. And the, it is good being so biblical and so Christian. Um, but tying that to the idea of film them and filming and a finished product and not really interrogating more so the morality of the product, but more so the product itself and then naming it as good. It's, it's almost, uh, it's almost in direct conflict with this, with this, I'm quoting speakers because there's nobody alive, but the speakers kind of uh, morality of the poem itself. And that to me is very interesting, right? And thinking about, um, the have you mentioned the longer the longer conversation of the lyric I and the lyric we and who's talking and who's actually saying what's ethical and moral, but then to talk about I'm filming this thing, and it's great and it's the master's house and I'm calling them the master and you know what I looked upon it and it was great it was good I loved it it was what it needed to be, and even goodness and good having its own kind of uh, stakes in this poem and stakes in the world. The poem, I mean, that line itself can be a masterclass on poetics in itself, right? But like, to put it in context of like the wild thing and the forgetting what I was trying to do, it just all brings it to, it just all brings in line. I'm just emotionally tired. <laughs> it's doing so much work. You're so right. Like that, that line in itself and like just sitting in the middle of all of these other lines, you can unpa unpack every line for like hours. But I, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's something that, yeah, has been lodged in my brain for a while that like, and I gaze upon it and it is good. It's so biblical and it feels mental and like gesturing towards something ancient, right? And it mentions the master's house exactly as it is written in the title for the first time within the poem. Um, and you wonder, like, what exactly is the master's house that she's speaking of, right? Is it the nation state of, like, the United States of America, or is it something else? Is it this poem that she's looking at and being like, it's a good poem? <laughs> yeah. Is it the English language, you know? <laughs> yeah. Her images are so weird as well, right? Like, she always puts in the strangest images into her poetry. Um, I'm thinking of like the the residue over the clear bulb of his eyes the first time that's mentioned with the banker and that kind of being a little bit hilarious and reminding me of the way cartoon characters have dollar signs on their eyes but then she complicates it later with like the relational past and mentions it again like how does she do that? Um, 
It is masterful. Even though it feels ironic to say that. <laughs> it really is. Or not ironic. You know, like that's the, like, maybe it's spot on. Yeah, like, it's like, yeah, yeah. The fact that it's both is. It is a premise. Okay. Oh. Uh, cool. Cool. Aria, you are a hot genius, and we love you. Yes. Thanks for zooming over to us with this unforgettable Salma Sharif poem. It is truly, hear me, hear me, truly unforgettable. Thanks to The Favorite Blue for our theme music. All of you who are listening, rating, and subscribing to us, your favorite people in the world. And thank you to, oh my God, myself, for winning the 92 Y Discovery Award. Hey. Yes. Thank you, sir. I forgot my celebration noise. Anyway, don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Something about Stitcher is always said. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pod and send along your favorite facts about chicken, your wine of the month subscriptions, and your compliments about our cuteness to thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. Zoinks! Spaghetti, fed in spaghetti, fed in the.